treating the problem physician, intervention, evaluation, and treatment. You're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician Roundtable. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, your host, and with me today is Dr. Lynn Hankus. Dr. Hankus is Clinical Professor Emeritus at the University of Washington School of Medicine in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. He's also a past president of the Federation of State Physician Health Programs, the umbrella organization for such programs. He is also among the 100 pioneer physicians in the United States who passed the first certification exam in addiction medicine. Lynn, thanks for being with us today to talk about uh, problem physicians and how we treat them. Maybe before we start, could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into the business of addiction medicine? Well, years ago when I was uh, practicing surgery, I became aware of some physician colleagues who were suffering from alcoholism and got involved with the Panel for Impaired Physicians, which was part of the Illinois State Medical Society. That was their early version of a state physician health program, and I became fascinated with the outpouring of compassion and tough love exhibited by this group in addressing and assisting the problems their fellow physicians were having, and soon learned that early identification of physicians with problematic behavior and their quick evaluation and treatment if they had a condition requiring it and monitoring afterwards were extremely effective ways to deal with this whole issue. And I uh, made a transition into addiction medicine back in the uh, early 80s and have been doing that for the past quarter century, uh, practicing addiction medicine as well as dealing uh, with physicians who have some of these problems. As the past president of the uh, Federation of State Physician Health Programs, you've obviously dealt with a lot of different kinds of programs, and a lot of these physician health programs are doing a good job, we hope, in uh, preventing impairment from progressing to on-the-job issues. Let's start first. How would you define impairment with a physician? Well, the AMA had a definition uh, back in the 70s, and I like to condense it a little bit, but it basically is impairment is the inability to practice with reasonable safety. The AMA used to say skill and safety, but I don't think skill is an issue that physician health programs should deal with. Those are competency issues that are dealt with best by medical specialty societies and medical boards. Physician health programs are concerned about protecting the public and are worried whether or not a physician is safe to practice. So I like to think of impairment as the inability to practice with reasonable safety. I'm glad you raised the the word impairment because it's a word we're trying to get away from. And that is because the general public and many medical boards, as a matter of fact, still confuse impairment as having the disease. In other words, if you're alcoholic or you're mentally ill, you're automatically impaired. And that's not the case. As a matter of fact, in my 20-plus years dealing with physicians in uh, this particular state, I am not aware of a single physician who ever progressed to the point of actual on-the-job impairment, like somebody who had to be yanked out of an operating room or out of a practice situation. Come close a couple of times, but that, they, they, those situations have been rare. Most of us, you know, get prepared in medical school and, and residency trainings and fellowships. Some of us could get impaired with these conditions we're going to talk about in a minute, but even when that happens, uh, the vast majority get repaired. 
So that word impairment uh, has a negative connotation, and we're, we're trying to get rid of it. How does a, a physician health program prevent that potential impairment, even if it hasn't actually happened yet, from progressing to what you said has not happened, for the most part, actual on-the-job impairment? How, how, how does the PHP do that? We've been fairly successful in doing that through a vast educational networking campaign. One of my most important duties as a physician health director was to educate medical staffs on the behavioral indicators of workplace impairment. And by that, I mean potential impairment. What do you actually look for, and what does it mean when you see it, and then what do you do with it once you detect it? So the early identification leads to early identification. And this disease, like any disease, the earlier you catch it, the more you can do with it. When you say we can do something with it, tell us about what typically happens. Well, let's say, for example, that physician Jones uh, is noted by his colleagues, the nurses and physicians he works with at St. Elsewhere's Hospital, that he's been chronically late, frequently absent. He has slurred speech on the phone when he's called at night. His professional demeanor is not what it used to be. His hygiene isn't quite the same. He has wide mood swings. And just in the last month, there have been two occasions where different people who are reliable, independent, objective, unbiased observers have noted alcohol on his breath. I get that cluster of symptoms reported to me. We will do what's called an intervention. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, and I'm speaking with Dr. Lynn Hankus, and we're discussing the problem physician, intervention, evaluation, and treatment. Lynn, you were describing a uh, constellation of symptoms that might be presented uh, to you, and where do we go from there? Well, this is one of the clear hallmarks uh, and distinguishing characteristics of an effective physician health program, which, by the way, many of us borrowed from the successful program in the airline industry, where we don't subscribe to the two prevalent myths that are out there in the public that the alcoholic or addict has to hit bottom or has to want help before it'll do any good. What we do through this process called intervention is essentially raise the bottom. And by that is we confront the individual in a very caring, in a very compassionate, in a very non-judgmental and in a very confidential atmosphere. We confront them with their alcohol or drug-related, alleged alcohol or drug-related behavior in such a way that they can hear it. And we do it in a setting that is conducive to partially penetrating this denial system that all chemically dependent and sometimes mentally ill people have. In other words, they have a disease that tells them they don't have the disease. And so in a carefully well-rehearsed with uh, professional interventionists present, we relate this behavior, and the goal of the intervention is not to label the physician with a particular diagnosis of being an alcoholic or a drug addict or a junkie, uh, but to say, you know, it sounds like you may have a problem with alcohol or drugs or you might have a problem with depression. We want you to get an evaluation, and that's the whole goal of the intervention. Are these evaluations done by the PHP, or are they uh, done by somebody outside of that? Well, most PHPs want these formal evaluations done by an independent professional. Mm -hmm. 
And that's to avoid, you know, any bias. That's to avoid any fox guarding the hen house accusation. The PHP obviously does an initial screening assessment and tries to determine what are we dealing with here, a round, square, oval peg, and what kind of hole we need to put it into. You know, and we get general ideas of what we're dealing with, and most of the time we're right. But it's better if it's done by an independent um, so that it doesn't look like we have a built-in bias and we're just trying to fill a treatment center bed someplace or that, that type of thing. Well, then if that independent professional comes up with a firm diagnosis, what's next for the doc? If the independent evaluation establishes that the physician in question has uh, an unequivocal diagnosis, then they have to get the appropriate treatment. That's an absolute essential. What might that look like? Treatment for medical professionals is a little more complex than non-medical professionals. Doctors, as a general rule, don't make good patients. I've heard that. Yes. It's hard to make that transition from being in the vertical position with the white coat, the stethoscope, surrounded by medical colleagues and an air of authority, to the horizontal position with one of those gowns and an open rear end, and people shoving stuff in you, up you, around you, and down you, and then all of a sudden you're taking orders instead of giving. And that's a tough transition for doctors to make. Right. So most physicians have customarily gone to treatment centers that specialize in the treatment of doctorate-level healthcare professionals. And this involves having staffs that are not easily intimidated by these uh, very powerful folks. And the treatment is usually on an inpatient basis, although, which means that you're in a residential setting around the clock, they last anywhere from three weeks to three months. These treatment programs are spread around the country, and unfortunately there's probably a dozen good ones, really good ones, that uh, are, are quite adept and quite competent at doing this. They, at some point in time, say, okay, Dr. Jones has successfully completed treatment, and he is able to return to the practice of medicine with reasonable safety. And they're discharged then uh, from the treatment program. What, what, what goes on during those three weeks to three months? What's actually happening inside those treatment centers to the doc? Well, uh, treatment is tridimensional. It involves the body, it involves the mind, and what we call the soul. In terms of the body, oftentimes the patient has to go through a detoxification process. They go through withdrawal. Their system in their body and their brain has become used to a certain level of drug, and now you take it away, and they go through withdrawal. So they have to be detoxified. Oftentimes there's other physical uh, organ damage from the substance itself. In the case of alcohol, it can cause uh, gastric problems, hepatic problems, pancreatic problems, cardiac problems, and so forth. And those have to be addressed. Once that's all stabilized, then we address the mind part of it, and that is there's something we call cognitive restructuring and emotional balancing. And the soul part is the recovery process, the spiritual restoration that occurs after treatment in the mutual help groups such as uh, Alcoholics or Narcotics Anonymous. In treatment, you have to penetrate the denial system to begin with, and I have been fascinated with the fact that even physicians who become patients don't really have a clear concept of the fact that chemical dependency or mental illness is a real disease state. So we've got to conceptualize that for them. Then you've got to reconnect them to their feelings because you can't heal what you can't feel. And every patient has specific core issues that must be dealt with that involve their family of origin and how they've grown up and how they've been framed and their interaction with society and cultural influences. We try to involve the family, Gary. Uh, that's very important because addiction is a family affliction. 
And one of the things we've learned to do in recent times is, is to develop relapse strategies. What does the patient do if relapse occurs? And then, of course, the last thing we have to do is inculcate the mutual help groups. And, and by inculcate, I mean stamp it in their uh, memory that the, these mutual help groups are critical to their ongoing recovery once they're discharged from the formal treatment process. That is a great description, and uh, I think that's going to be really helpful to a lot of us thinking this through in the future. I want to say thank you to Dr. Lynn Hankus, who has been our guest. We've been discussing treating the problem physician, intervention, evaluation, and treatment. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For questions and comments, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com or visit us at reachmd.com. Thanks for listening.